Welcome to the Story Night Podcast, a place where we share hearts, our hurts, and how God's wonder intersects with the story of our lives. A ministry of Calvary Mac. Here's our host, Jessica Campbell. Hi, ladies, and welcome back to the Story Night Podcast. Tonight, I have another throwback episode for you, and this story comes from one of the live Santa Barbara events from three years ago. This is Holly's story, and ladies, I want to let you know right now that you will need a box of tissues. This is a beautiful story, and it is deeply emotional, so I'm preparing you now. And as always, I'm going to have Holly at the end of the episode with a brief update for you, some words of hope and encouragement and a closing prayer. But first, let's dive in now and listen to Holly's story from August 2017. Well, I am not a speaker, but I'm kind of a writer, so I'm going to read you part of my story tonight. So I'd like to time up, start our time together tonight by sharing a story with you from the Jesus Storybook Bible. This is one of our favorite bedtime stories around my house. It's well-loved, kind of falling apart, but it's basically just like a Bible for children told in a way that is really fun to read. So the story I'm going to share with you tonight is called The Terrible Lie. The Terrible Lie. Adam and Eve lived happily together in their beautiful new home, and everything was perfect for a while, until the day everything went wrong. God had a horrible enemy. His name was Satan. Satan had once been the most beautiful angel, but he didn't want to be just an angel. He wanted to be God. He grew proud and evil and full of hate, and God had to send him out of heaven. Satan was seething with anger and looking for a way to hurt God. He wanted to stop God's plan. Stop this love story right there. So he disguised himself as a snake, and he waited in the garden. Now God had given Adam and Eve only one rule. Don't eat the fruit on that tree, God told them, because if you do, you'll think you'll know everything, and you'll stop trusting me. And then death and sadness and tears will come. You see, God knew that if they ate the fruit, they would think they didn't need him, and they would try to make themselves happy without him. But God knew there was no such thing as happiness without him, and life without him wouldn't be life at all. As soon as the snake saw his chance, he slithered silently up to Eve. Does God really love you? The serpent whispered. And if he does, why won't he let you eat that nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. The snake's words hissed into her ears and sunk down deep into her heart like poison. Does God love me? Eve wondered. Suddenly, she didn't know anymore. Just trust me, the serpent whispered. You don't need God. One small taste, that's all, and you'll be happier than you could ever dream. Eve picked the fruit and ate some, and Adam ate some too, and a terrible lie came into the world. It would never leave. It would live on in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, God doesn't love me. And it wasn't a dream. It was a nightmare. A dove flew from Adam's hand. A deer darted in a thicket, as if they were frightened by something. A chill was in the air. Something strange was happening. They had always been naked, but now they felt naked and wrong. And they didn't want anyone to see them, so they hid. Later that evening, as God was taking his walk, he called out to them, Children! Usually Adam and Eve loved to hear God's voice, and they would run to him. But this time, they ran away from him, and they hid in the shadows. Where are you? God called. Hiding, Adam said. We're afraid of you. Did you eat the fruit I told you not to eat? God asked them. 
Adam said, Eve made me do it. What have you done? God asked. Eve said, well, the serpent made me do it. And terrible pain came into God's heart. His children hadn't just broken the one rule. They had broken God's heart. They had broken their wonderful relationship with him. And now he knew everything else would break. God's creation would start to unravel and come undone and go wrong. From now on, everything would die, even though it was all supposed to last forever. You see, sin had come into God's perfect world, and it would never leave. God's children would always be running away from him and hiding in the dark. Their hearts would break now, and they would never work properly again. God couldn't let his children live forever, not in such pain and not without him. There was only one way to protect them. You'll have to leave the garden now, God told his children, his eyes filling with tears. This is no longer your true home. It's not the place for you anymore. But before they left the garden, God made clothes for his children to cover them. He gently clothed them, and then he sent them away on a long, long journey out of the garden, out of their home. Well, in another story, it would be all over, and that would have been the end. But not in this story. God loved his children too much to let the story end there. Even though he knew he would suffer, God had a plan, a magnificent dream. One day he would get his children back. One day he would make the world their perfect home again. And one day he would wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And though they would forget him and run from him, deep in their hearts, God's children would miss him always and long for them. Lost children yearning for their home. Before they left the garden, God whispered a promise to Adam and Eve. It will not always be so. I will come to rescue you. And when I do, I'm going to do battle against the snake. I'll get rid of the sin and the darkness and the sadness that you let in here. I'm coming back for you. And he would. One day, God himself would come. As I think about the idea of a story night, I can't help but start here. While the story I'm about to share with you tonight is unique because it's mine, it's also much bigger than me. It's an echo of the themes that God has put into the hearts of his people since the beginning of time. There's something about a story that invites us to step into the narrative and to find God there, perhaps in a way we haven't seen him before. So my hope is that this story will help you see him him a little more clearly tonight. I won't pretend to solve the problem of pain and suffering for you in the next 45 minutes, but I would like to share the ways that God has met me there. Some of the chapters of my story are complete with satisfying resolution, and others are rich with redemption and with grace. And some still feel hollow. As I write these words, I'm wrestling with God to make sense of them. But the good news is that I know the last chapter of my story, even if it hasn't happened yet. The story he wrote for Eve is the same story that he's written for me and for you. Chapter 1, The Happiest Place on Earth. My plans for the evening had fallen through at the last minute, so I agreed to join my college roommate and some of her friends at Disneyland instead. As we lined up to board Space Mountain, I looked around for her. She had slipped into place beside her not-boyfriend, Nathan, and seemed to have forgotten that I even existed. I looked around, noticing that the groups had condensed down into pairs. Couples. I guess we're riding together, came a voice behind me. I guess so, I replied, turning around. I'm Mike, he grinned. His eyes lit up a little bit, and it was hard not to smile back at him. We climbed down into the coaster, fastened our seatbelts, and took off. One ride was all it took. 
It was easy with him. He smiled wide, he laughed hard, he felt deeply, and my world was better with him in it. From the very beginning, I knew he wanted to become a doctor. Everyone warned us that it would be hard, but everyone didn't know us. They didn't know what we had. When I said yes to him at the altar, I said yes to whatever life would bring. A few months into our marriage, I got the first taste of what that yes would cost me. We were living in Pasadena, and I had a teaching job at a charming Christian school down the street from our apartment. All my college friends were still within driving distance. My parents lived an hour and a half away. When the laundry piled up high enough, I made the trek back home to spend time with them. (laughs) My mom can attest. Life was great. Until the day I opened the mailbox to find an envelope from Washington, D.C. It was heavy. That could only mean one thing. Rejection letters are short and light. I didn't even have to open it to know that it didn't have to open this envelope to know that my fate was sealed. An acceptance letter would sit on top, followed by a stack of forms to be signed and returned to Georgetown Medical School, 2,659 miles away from the mailbox where I stood. That summer, we loaded all of our wedding gifts into our two-door Honda Civic. I cried for most of those 2,659 miles. Then we arrived, and it was time to be a grown-up. I took a job teaching middle school at an inner-city public charter school. I taught Saturday school to help pay the bills. I cooked. I cleaned our apartment. I went to church every week. It didn't take long to discover that med school was as hard as everyone had warned us, and maybe even harder. My husband saw how much I missed home and worked hard to earn the grades that would give him a chance at a competitive residency program in California. I saw his diligence to studying as a neglect to our marriage. I began to pity myself his servant, and we failed to know each other. We weren't the same carefree kids at Disneyland anymore. At the end of the four years, his training drew to a close. All our family and friends came to his graduation, and I threw a party. They praised him, and they congratulated him. They gave him gifts. Meanwhile, I stood in the kitchen, my heart seething with contempt. No one saw that I was the one who had paid the rent and put the food on the table those long four years. No one acknowledged the sacrifices that I had made for him to follow his dreams. I didn't get any cards or presents. All I got was the reminder of how proud I should be of him. And I was. What he had accomplished was impressive. But I was also bitter, resentful. And I began to listen to the voice of the snake. Does God really love you? Maybe he's holding out on you. You've done everything he's ever asked, and where has it gotten you? This marriage isn't making you happy. You haven't been able to get pregnant. You're only 28. It's not too late to start over. I said and did some awful things to my husband that I would come to regret, and in the month that followed, I tried to quit our marriage. The details of it all are another story, but the reality was that my life hadn't followed the fairy tale I expected. It wasn't so simple as marrying the Prince Charming I had met at the happiest place on earth. I was destroyed. I didn't know what I believed. I didn't know who I was. But the man I married knew exactly who I was. He told me that he wasn't going anywhere. The promise he had made almost four years before was forever. So we started over that day with the acknowledgement that we had failed each other and needed more grace than we could possibly offer one another on our own. And that began a journey. On the first day of Lent in 2010, I cried out to God to show me that he was still real. I promised to get up every morning at 5 a.m. and meditate on Psalm 103, and I asked him to show up, even though I was halfway convinced that I had just made a promise to the ceiling of my apartment. Toward the end of those 40 days, I had this dream. It had never happened before, and it hasn't happened since. I was cold and shivering in the dark, and suddenly a great warmth washed over my body. 
I was surrounded by a blinding light. I drew my arms up to shield my face. As quickly as it had come, it subsided. It was the most beautiful place I'd ever seen. To describe it seems pitiful. It was a jungle, but it was safe, a paradise. Through the foliage, the same light glowed, and it captivated me. I couldn't run fast enough as I pushed the branches and the vines aside to get closer. I struggled until one giant banana leaf stood in my way. I reached out to shove it aside. My fingers brushed the edge of the waxy leaf, opening this tiny pocket where the light flooded in. The force of it knocked me back into consciousness. Never in my life have I been so desperate to go back to sleep, but it was pointless. I wanted to make it past that leaf, to enter fully into that wonderful light. But instead, I found myself tangled up in the covers of my bed, wide awake. My Bible laid open to Psalm 103 on the nightstand next to me. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. I experienced God's invitation to come into his presence that day in a way I never had. His word was alive in a way I hadn't experienced in years. It was as if he had dropped me into the garden for a split second, just long enough to remind me that his story is real. The darkness and pain of this season were the results of decisions I made, of attitudes that I embraced. But even as my own worst enemy, I couldn't separate myself from God's love, his never stopping, never giving up unbreaking, always and forever love. Chapter 2, Babies It was a day we'd waited for for years, my first prenatal appointment. The doctor picked up his magical sonogram wand to introduce me to our baby. I was nervous I wouldn't know what I was supposed to be looking for, but the head and spinal column were unmistakable. Little nubs extended where his limbs would fill in. I'm not sure how long the room was quiet. I didn't know that I was supposed to be listening as well as watching. It was also much to take in. This is concerning, said the doctor. The heartbeat is slow, too slow. The fetus is the correct size, but his voice trailed off. They told me to make another appointment, to come back in a few days. That night, we sat in our living room. Friends encircled us. They lifted their voices on our behalf, pleading with God to touch that tiny heart and hasten its beating. I went back to the doctor but our baby's heart rate had descended into a deafening silence, miscarriage. A few weeks later, we rose at dawn on a Sunday morning and drove to the top of a mountain. Mike carried his Bible, the Book of Common Prayer, a garden spade, and the tiny box holding our child. We climbed to the spot where the earth would greet the sun. As the light broke over the horizon, we read ancient words, wiping away tears of grief and disappointment, laying our baby's tiny form to rest in the earth. We named him Thomas remembering that God had met his friend despite his doubt. In all that Thomas couldn't see or understand, Jesus was still there. A few months later, my sister-in-law called. Her friend was working as a nurse in Africa and had delivered a baby the night before. The mother died during the birth, and there was no one to care for the child. They knew that we had talked of adopting one day and wondered if now might be our one day. The truth was that our one day had a lot of strings attached. Adoption was a part of our plan for the future. We always knew we would grow our family this way. But we had just planned for it to happen after we were financially stable 
and had a little experience raising a couple biological children, children of our own. The problem was that the biological children thing hadn't worked out so well for us, and the financially stable part of the equation was years away. Losing our baby had revealed the ache in our hearts to become parents, but there were still so many pieces of the puzzle that hadn't come together. A few weeks later, a young couple from our home group invited us over for breakfast. Isaac slid an envelope across the table. I got a bonus at work, he explained. We know that you guys want to adopt, and we feel like maybe God wants us to share this with you to start your family. It might cover a few fingers and toes, Samantha last laughed. It was a check for $5,000. There are times in your life when you wonder if maybe God is speaking to you. Maybe he's opening a window. Maybe he's giving you an opportunity. This was not one of those times. The door was wide open, inviting us to walk through. On January 1st, 2012, we submitted our application to an adoption agency. There was no turning back, no slowing down. By March, we had completed the dossier and submitted it with a non-refundable check for $10,000. We were all in. The only thing to do was to wait for the agency to tell us they had found us a match. Easter morning arrived. That hope the resurrection brings, the one promising to fix broken things and make them new, it made sense in a way I hadn't understood before. I felt the deep sadness of the baby we had lost, the one who should have been in my arms by that time. But I also felt the hope and excitement of becoming a mother to a baby who needed a mama. God was redeeming part of our story, and it was good. Surprisingly, I also felt sick and tired. A few weeks later, an ultrasound screen revealed the unexpected, a steady heartbeat. After years of trying and failing miserably, I was finally pregnant with a healthy, strong baby at the most inconvenient time possible. (laughs) Backing out of the adoption was not an option. We were invested in every possible way. The baby growing inside me wasn't a replacement. He was a bonus, a miraculous, wondrous blessing we never expected. I don't think God gave us a baby because the stars finally aligned, or because the hormones in my body finally became to some magical balance because I relaxed, as some have been so helpful to point out. (laughs) I believe that God wanted me to have a baby exactly when it happened, because he could see the whole story, even when I could not. As I carried a child in my own womb, I began to pray for a woman in Congo who was carrying a baby herself. I didn't know her name or her story. I just knew that someday I would take over her role. Something terrible was about to happen. A deep tragedy would tear her apart from her child, and I would be standing on the sideline, waiting to love her baby. As I watched my belly swell and felt the kicks of the little boy inside, I prayed for grace and mercy for the woman who would be experiencing the same exact thing. Don't cry, Sarah Ribbons. (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) Okay. Unbeknownst to me, A little boy was born on June 5th, 9,000 miles away. The girl who had carried him those long night and months would never get to be his mama. To this day, I still hope that somehow my prayers brought brought her some comfort. On September 17th, a photo popped up in my inbox. The boy who was chosen to be our son. His name was Jeff Day. We said yes and began the process of legally adopting him into our family. In November, we became Jeff Day's legal parents in Congo. The U.S. Embassy was scheduled to issue his visa within three months, so we began the plan to bring him home while waiting out the last month of my pregnancy. On December 13th, Samuel was born. We got to meet our youngest son first, and what a gift he was. So much more than we had hoped or dreamed. Our hearts nearly burst. 
We began to settle into our new life as a family of three. All the while, photos of Jeff Day were posted around the house. The date for his visa appointment arrived. We received notification that the investigation window had been extended six months on all cases. We would need to wait another six months to meet our son. We were crushed. Though it would have been admittedly difficult to manage a three-month-old and a nine-month-old, it was even more impossible to imagine our son in an orphanage. So my husband hopped on a plane to check up on him for a week. This part of the story is his to tell. If you ever meet him, ask him about it. At the end of that six-month investigation window, we finally got an email saying that Jeff Day's visa had been approved. We booked a flight and packed our bags. We drove from San Francisco down to Santa Barbara for Mike to squeeze in a quick job interview before catching a flight out of LAX that night. As we made the trek, another email came in. All adoption in Congo are suspended. No children will be allowed to leave the country for at least one year. The thing was, our son already had every document necessary to go home. We only needed to pick up the exit letter, so we took a gamble and decided to go anyway. It was a moment I'd been waiting for for nearly two years, going to meet my child. But in order to do that, I also had to place my nine-month-old baby into the arms of my mom and walk away. I kissed him and breathed him in, promising that I'd be back in two weeks, three tops, and that I'd bring him a brother, and it would be worth it. A brother was one of the best gifts I could give him, and I boarded the flight. Whatever you do, don't forget to pee before you get off the plane, Mike reminded me. Just trust me. (laughs) I knew my husband well enough to know that his joking carried some truth. We disembarked and were corralled through immigration. After realizing our ride never showed, we managed to find an English-speaking man who worked for an adoption agency and agreed to squeeze, squeeze us into his car. We began the two-hour trek to the hotel. In the U.S., the drive would have taken a half an hour, maybe. It couldn't have been more than 10 miles. But between the bonfires in the middle of the road, the parking lot of traffic, massive potholes and washed-out roads, street children banging on the cars, the floods of pedestrians filling the road, I understood why Mike had told me to pee on the plane. I've traveled before, but I hadn't ever felt so out of control. I was terrified, devastated, in complete disbelief. And if I'm honest, I began to wonder if I was about to leave Sam as an orphan. I realize that sounds dramatic, but it wasn't hard to imagine how someone could disappear in a place like this. The next morning, they told us they would bring our son to us. It's funny, when you're pregnant, there's this very clear sense that the child will come. I know it may feel interminable, but it's not. With Jeff Day, there was no guarantee. We hoped that he would one day join our family, but nothing was certain. We had waited 21 months for this day. We sat outside our hotel room for hours, waiting for the gate to open, for someone to drive in with our baby. Finally, a horn honked and Mike jumped up. He recognized Pascal's truck from his last trip. I stood ready to cry and laugh and vomit all at the same time. The door opened, and a woman carried a small boy toward us. His eyes narrowed, and he began to cry. She smiled and laughed, pushing him into our arms. Then he began to scream, the most primal, terrified cry. When you birth a baby, they come out wailing, but it's not because they hate you. It's because they've been thrown into the shocking environment, and your job as mother is to bring them comfort and safety. A mother has milk and warmth, and that's enough. As the truck pulled up, I knew that I had what Jeff De so desperately needed, but I also knew that he didn't know that. He didn't know that I loved him. He didn't know what love was. He didn't know that I could give him shelter and nourishing food. He had never had those things before. 
And though they were good, they were foreign to him. He didn't know that I could give him peace. He was so accustomed to chaos that the quiet brought fear. To our son, we were the worst thing that had ever happened in his short traumatic life. It's okay, it's okay, Pascal waved, and they drove off. We carried the small screaming boy into our room. He clawed to escape us and continued crying until he fell into exhausted sleep. We sat there staring at him. This was it. This was what we had fought for. The time, the energy, the money, the waiting. Suddenly they were insignificant. The fight of our lives was only just about to begin. The narrative with adoption is that it's this beautiful thing, a picture of God's love for us, really. And I believe that. But the truth is that it's so deeply intertwined with brokenness and loss, the complexity of it all is overwhelming. God didn't create adoption to be a wonderful thing in and of itself. He put it into place as a safety net. And safety nets are only necessary in the face of danger and peril. The voice of the snake crept into that room. What have you done? Who do you think you are? This is insane. You're going to ruin the life of your kid back home. You are not up for this. It might not be too late to catch a flight out tonight. Later that evening, after hours of sitting and staring at him, the time came to change his diaper. We peeled off his baggy clothes to reveal the tiny frame inside. It was clear that his body was in need of all the medicines we had packed, for parasites, for his gut, for his skin. And so we began the process of caring for him. It started with screams, but after a while he gave up and went limp in our arms. We bathed him and rubbed him with oil. We tried to feed him and quickly discovered that he hadn't ever learned how to use his mouth and his lips to eat properly. He had been fed rice pudding in a bottle with the top cut off for the past 15 months. The next morning he woke up and he sat staring at us. We had brought a book of pictures. He stared at the ones of his younger self with Mike from that visit six months before. He looked back and forth, confused. Finally, he pointed to the photo and looked at Mike. We cheered quietly. Yes, his papa had come back, just as he had promised. And so the journey began. He warmed up to Mike and observed me, still trying to figure me out. We spent the next week visiting every office and potential contact we could find, trying to figure out a way to take our son home. We were promised that our name was on a special list. We would definitely get to take our son home, but we must be patient. It would happen soon, very soon. Definitely, maybe tomorrow. <laughs> the date for our flight back home arrived. We were so close. It was impossible to think of leaving Jeff Day behind. I would stay and Mike would go back home. Vacation time isn't a thing in residency and Sam needed one of us at home. As he kissed me goodbye and climbed into the taxi back to the airport, I called out that I would see him in another week. We had gotten enough groceries and water to last that long. Surely I could last one week on my own. I could spend the next hour telling you all the crazy stories of how I spent the next 10 weeks. Visiting the orphanage where our boy was born, hugging the women who cared for him as an infant, trekking out to the Congo River to watch the crops float down from the bush, battling the enormous flying cockroaches in our room, armed with nothing more than a flip-flop, <laughs> visiting the hospital with my sick boy, and getting pushed to the front of the line because I was white and had money while a hundred other mamas sat in the waiting room with sick babies in their arms. Visiting a politician slash possible warlord because someone told me he might be willing to help me. Crashing the U.S. ambassador's garden party to introduce myself and ask for help. Sneaking into the U.N. Eating good food with good people who loved us. Eating tortillas on Thanksgiving night because it was a luxury. 
and Thanksgiving isn't a thing in a country without freedom. Eating fish eyeballs on Christmas Day because I was the guest of honor, and the eyeballs are an extravagant delicacy. (laughs) Helping to launch a sewing school so young women might have a chance at hope. But all those crazy stories had two people in them, me and Jeff Day. We were inseparable. We spent every waking hour together and every moment asleep side by side under the mosquito net. There were plenty of tears and struggles, but he learned that I was his mama and that I loved him fiercely. Those 12 weeks came to an end the day after Christmas. All the promises of my signed letter were empty lies. They weren't going to let my baby leave for reasons no one knew. I made the phone call. Pascal came to pick us up in his blue truck. As we made the trek to the foster family's house, all I could think about was how impossible it would be to find my son after I dropped him off. There was no address, no street markers. We had just driven into the heart of an enormous haystack, and he was my needle. I carried him down the path to a humble structure. A man and his wife waited. I'll never forget his screams, the terror, the betrayal. I had spent the past 86 days convincing this tiny, vulnerable child to trust me. And then I was forced to turn my back on him and walk away. I boarded my flight home to San Francisco. Mike picked me up at the airport. And as I peered into the back seat, the car seat, I saw a boy I didn't recognize. My baby was gone. I had missed his first haircut, his first Halloween, his first steps, his first Thanksgiving, his first birthday, his first Christmas. He didn't even know who I was and only wanted his daddy. The voice of the snake came again. You are a failure. You abandoned your own flesh and blood for some random kid in Africa you will never see again? You finally got the baby you wanted, and then you left him for three months. Who does that? Chapter 3. Congo Revisited. Thankfully, it didn't take too long for Sam to forget about my absence. He quickly remembered my voice and discovered that I made better food than his papa. (laughs) It took me a while to live up to all the ways his grandparents had spoiled him with their love and care. But we fell back into a rhythm. For five months, I fought for Jeff Day from home. I organized a whole political campaign and helped launch a petition that got over a million signatures. It made it to the White House. And Obama even called Kabila, the president of Congo, on behalf of the adoptive families. But it didn't matter. Kabila didn't care. Chef Day's birthday was approaching, and after missing all the birthdays so far, I decided to go back for a visit. My dad accompanied me, and we set off, this time slightly more prepared for what lay ahead. We had a layover in Brussels. I was in line next to this young Congolese guy wearing an Abercrombie hoodie. I said hi, and he responded with a greeting in English. We began chatting, and he revealed that he worked for the prime minister. He wondered what business brought me to Congo, so I relayed my story. His name was Thierry, and he gave me his number and told me to call him. He might be able to help. The next day, I was with my baby once again. It took a few minutes, but by the end of the day, he remembered me as if I had never left. We had forged a bond during those three long months together. I continued visiting the immigration department, badgering them with my persistence. I continued bugging the ambassador, begging for his help, and I invited Thierry over to our hotel for pizza. He asked if he could bring his brother, a lawyer. That night, they came up with a plan to review the legal terms of our case. It was all very generous. But I had been in Congo long enough to know that everyone has a grand plan. 
but nothing ever works. Time was running out, and I knew it. Two days before my flight was scheduled to leave, my husband called. I had this dream, this like vision, he said. We're supposed to call him Moses. Moses? Why? Where did you get that? That is not on our list. (laughs) We had a list of names. Before we had met him, we named him Miles. Not for any great reason, we just really liked it. But when we met our boy, he was old enough to say his name. He would point to his chest proudly and pronounce, Jete, Jete. Miles was definitely not his name. It didn't fit. So we called him Jefte, figuring we would come up with something later. No, really, his name is Moses. Jefte is his middle name. He's coming home. God is going to release him, set him free, just like he did for Moses and the Israelites. To be honest, I don't remember my exact response. It was something along the lines of an eye roll, an agreement that if this child was allowed to leave the Congo with me, he could be called Moses. (laughs) The next day, I packed up my hotel room again, like I had so many times before. And then the phone rang. Thierry's brother had reviewed the case and sent a letter to the prime minister's office. Then a call went from the prime minister's office to the immigration department. An official at the immigration department signed the exit permit, and it was waiting for me on his desk. After months of empty promises and with hundreds and hundreds of other unsigned letters stacked up next to it, our letter had the signature. So it was that I left Congo again, this time with Moses Shefte. We endured a 40-hour journey home that was only bearable because it meant the end of a two-and-a-half-year journey to bring Moses into our family. I handed Moses to Mike with tears streaming down my face. It was Father's Day. Go. There's a 
Chapter 4, John Mark. I pressed my forehead into the railing along the side of the hospital bed and began to count, drawing a deep breath in and slowly releasing it. My knees curled up toward my chest as the pain intensified. Hot tears spilled down my face. (laughs) Darn it, it's too early to cry. Okay. I cursed under my breath and lost track of how many seconds had passed. It didn't matter. Every second gone was one closer to the end. I gripped the railing even tighter, driving my forehead into the cold metal, attempting to make the pain I could control. Greater than that, I could not. The contractions racked my body relentlessly. They began in my abdomen, wrapping around my swollen belly before reaching up to my heart, threatening to stop it completely. The day before, I had cautiously stepped into the perinatologist's office for my 20-week checkup. There had been some complications early on, and after a handful of failed pregnancies, I hadn't yet allowed myself to relax. He glided the wand back and forth across my belly, confirmed that the baby was definitely a boy, and pointed out how perfect he was. All the tests he had ordered came back with the results that we had hoped for. Our baby was developing exactly as he should. Everything looked great. He deemed me a normal, healthy pregnant woman and sent me on my way. My guard fell. Everything was going to be okay. I had a few more months to wait out, but the only other time we had made it this far, we ended the process with a baby in our arms, the most perfect, not spirited, little boy any mother could wish for. My husband and I smiled at each other in the car on the way home, finally believing that this would be the end of the loss that had marked our family history. I allowed myself to imagine the moment when he would enter the world, the joy that would spread across my husband's face, that magic when newborn screams break the tension in the air. So much tension, woven like a heavy textile through so much loss. First Thomas, 
whose birthday should have been March 19th, 2012. Then Karis, the due date was September 14th, 2015. The baby had measured well past eight weeks, but the heartbeat had disappeared. A few months after that, we saw the heartbeat of a new baby, strong and steady, the doctor announced with a smile on his face. Once you see a heartbeat, the the chances of miscarriage drop to less than 5% and decrease steadily with each passing day. But at 13 weeks, I slipped into that less than 1% of miscarriages. We named that baby Hope, not because we felt it, but because we wanted to. We wanted to keep believing, even in the face of hopelessness. The doctors had no answers to all they lost. They just called it bad luck. But finally, this baby was different. His existence threatened to break apart those threads of sadness and of grief. I drifted off to sleep that night with a peace that hadn't visited me in months. But sometime during the night, it departed. By the time I got to the hospital the next morning, it was too late. The same doctor rushed to my room with his portable sonogram machine and shook his head in disbelief. In a moment, everything was shattered. They dimmed the lights and told me to rest. It would still be a few hours. It didn't matter that my baby was perfect. It didn't matter that I could still feel him, nestles inside of me, kicking every so often to remind me that he was there. They said there was nothing they could do. It was too late. It didn't matter that he wasn't ready for the world. When you labor to birth birth a child, there's this strength that rises up, one that you never knew you had. It tempers your breathing. It fills you with resolve. You are a force. Anything is possible. But when your baby has no chance of survival, each crushing contraction stops your heart. Each breath is a battle, one you're not even sure you care to win. Each push is a nightmare, and every instinct tells you to hold on to the life inside. But eventually, nature wins, and the brokenness is unleashed. Our baby was born in much the same way my four-year-old son came into the world. The pressure, the release, the warmth. My husband cut the umbilical cord, and we stared in disbelief. I wrapped him up in the indigo shibori swaddle I had made in a defiant act of hope only a few weeks before. We traced his delicate features. We marveled at his tiny fingernails, the ears that took in our voices, faint eyelashes and pink skin. His arched top lip and pouty bottom lip immediately proved just how strong genetics are. He looked just like my husband and our four-year-old son. I needed two hands to hold him, to support his head and his body. He was curled up, hands and ankles crossed, the same way Sam and I find comfort when we drift off to sleep. He was knitted together with such care and precision. It took my breath away. If not for his size, he would be a newborn. But he entered the world in deafening silence. Now I understand why they call it stillborn. Later that night, a nurse knocked softly on the door and entered with a soft with a sack of papers. She told us we would need to fill out some forms before we went home. She asked if we had a name for him, if we had a mortuary we would like them to call. She measured him. She took his footprints and his fingerprints, treating him with all the dignity every human deserves. She kept whispering how handsome he was, how sorry she was. I kissed him goodbye one final time. forced my feet to walk to the wheelchair waiting in the doorway. I told my knees to bend and my hips hips to sit. She pushed me down the dark floor 
We passed the closed doors that lined the hall, the ones filled with weary new mamas and fresh newborns. Warm light glowed through the little windows and from under the cracks of the doors, but I was being pulled through a vortex of chaos toward the exit. The door swung open in front of me, and the cold, dark night consumed me. The snake's voice whispered, Really? Are you still going to stick with God on this one? How could a God who loves you possibly allow this to happen? Chapter 5. Bleak Midwinter. My heels sank down through the tangled grass and into the soft dirt that covered the graveyard. With each step, the ground threatened to swallow me. The piercing wind ripped through my black dress, sending its icy fingers to grip my heart. Through my sobs, I watched my husband cradle the tiny box he had fashioned to hold our boy. He laid it gently next to the hole in the ground. He met me where I stood. This was our final act of parenthood with John Mark, laying him to rest. The prayer of committal covered the sacred space, and we watched the little box descend. Stooping down, I grabbed a handful of earth and sprinkled it into the gaping hole. It was a cruel metaphor, a void so deep nothing could ever come close to filling it. Our overflowing tears watered the strip of sod as they rolled it back into place. I laid the flowers down, rubbing my fingers over the sprigs of rosemary so I'd be able to smell it again later, to remember. Rain clouds had enshrouded the night, the sky the night before, but the violent December winds had cleared the air, and the sun's rays reached down to me in a way I don't often witness. The little spot of ground that now held my baby was completely bathed in this brilliant light, and the light was familiar. It was the same light that had first met me in that dream all those years before, when God showed up to remind me that he was real and that I was not alone. We drove from the cemetery to this very room. The boys had been practicing for their preschool performance, and the show was about to begin. They donned their Christmas jammies and stood on the stage. Raising their hands to sign, they began to sing. In the bleak midwinter, all creation groans. For a world in darkness... Frozen like a stone, light is breaking in a stable for a throne, and he shall reign forevermore. One of the darkest days of my life, Moses and Sam were the ones whose voices drowned out the snake, filling my ears and my heart with hope and with truth. Chapter 6. Choosing Light. Sunlight peeked in through the windows, casting its golden glow on our gathering, my grandmother's crystal goblets placed at each setting. Delicious food, fresh coffee and rosé, forged greenery mixed with rosemary for remembrance. My due date had arrived. The temptation to give birth to despair on this day was overwhelming. I'd been laboring with it for 19 weeks. On the cloudy, overcast days, I sensed it looming. When I gazed at my glowing friend with her expectant bump, I felt its pull. And with every wistful glance at a newborn tucked inside a wrap close to his mother, he called out to me. And so while it looked like a beautiful party, it was much more than that. A defiant act of choosing hope. Striking a match to shed light where darkness would otherwise prevail. Baking a four-layer Meyer lemon cake to chase down the bile rising in my throat with the sweetness this world has to offer. 
I had invited my friends to sit with me at the table. As Henry Nowen suggests in his book, Can You Drink the Cup? I raised my great-grandmother's crystal goblet in reflection, recognizing the deep pain and sorrow that filled it. And then I looked around to those who share my table, acknowledging that we are in this together. I'm not alone. Finally, I drank it down so that God can refill my cup with hope, the only balm that will affect my heavy soul. One friend shared a poem. Another brought a blooming rose bush to plant in my garden. I opened a simple package, a hand-sewn sachet matching my baby's birth weight that sits heavy in my hands. The tears welled up as I choked back sobs. But as I looked around the table, wet eyes with smudged mascara met my gaze. None of them knew my pain, but all of them shared it. this 
Epilogue. I am weary of being in this story. My story. Each time I think I should be allowed to escape disappointment, it seems to strike again, even more cruelly than the time before. But I've also come to understand that I wouldn't know God the way I do to do today if I lived in any other story. I'm angry. But after saying goodbye to so many babies, I found that he is angry alongside of me. This is not how he created his world to function. I'm confused, but I've come to learn that he's big enough to hold all my questions and not dismiss them. I'm full of sorrow, but so is he. He knows the pain of searing loss. The temptation to despair remains, but I've also tasted bitterness, and I know that it does not satisfy. I don't say any of this to lessen the significance of my pain. I've never felt anything so acutely as John Mark's departure, but I don't know. I have to trust that God is working for my good, despite this tragedy. On the side, I can't see. So I hold to the hope that I know God more because I knew John Mark. Even when my heart is breaking, when my soul is shaking, there is hope. And for today, that is enough, because the story isn't over yet. It only seems fitting to close our time with the last chapter from the Jesus Storybook Bible, A Dream of Heaven. John was one of Jesus' helpers. He was old now, and he was living on an island, which might sound nice, except it was a prison. (laughs) The leaders put him there to stop him from talking about Jesus. But I'm sure you don't think a little thing like being in a cell, in a prison, on an island, in the middle of an ocean could stop God's plan, do you? Well, one morning, Jesus appeared right there in John's cell. Jesus' eyes were bright, shining like the sun. I'm going to show you a secret, John, Jesus said, about when I come back. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Write down what you see so God's children can read it and wait with happy excitement. Then Jesus gave John a beautiful dream, except John was wide awake, and what he saw was real, and one day it would all come true. I see a sparkling city shimmering in the sky, glittering, glowing, coming down from heaven and from the sky. Heaven is coming down to earth. God's city is beautiful. Walls of topaz, jasper, sapphire, wide streets paved with gold, gleaming pearl gates that are never locked shut. Where is the sun? Where is the moon? They aren't needed anymore. God is all the light people need. No more darkness, no more night. And the king says, look, God and his children are together again. No more running away or hiding No more crying or being lonely or afraid. No more being sick or dying. Because all those things are gone. Yes, they're gone forever. Everything sad has come untrue. And see, I have wiped away every tear from every eye. And then a deep, beautiful voice that sounded like thunder in the sky says, Look, I am making everything new. It was hard to squeeze all John saw into words and fit it into a page, and cram it into a book. All the words on all the pages of all the books in all the world would never be enough. I am the beginning, Jesus said, and the ending. One day, John knew, heaven would come down and mend God's broken world, and make it our true, perfect home once again. And he knew, in some mysterious way, that would be hard to explain. 
that everything was going to become more wonderful for once having been so sad. And he knew then that the ending of the story was going to be so great that it would make all the sadness and tears and everything seem just like a shadow that is being chased away by the morning sun. I'm on my way, said Jesus. I'll be there soon. John came to the end of his book, but he didn't write the end, because of course that's how stories finished, and this one's not over yet. So instead, he wrote, Come quickly, Jesus, which perhaps is really just another way of saying to be continued. Thank you. Well, ladies, I hope you were just so touched by Holly's story. I know that that is an incredibly powerful and moving and emotional story. So we now have Holly with us and she's going to give us a, a quick update. So Holly, first of all, thank you so much for taking time to do this. I know, I know you've got a busy schedule, um, but I would love to have you just get to say hello to the listeners and tell us a little bit about what's happened in your story since you shared. Yeah. Hey, Jessica, thanks for having me. This is so fun. And it's good to to reflect and look back and see how God worked in my life up to that point. And then also how in the past three years, he has written new stories um, and left some chapters still hanging open and finished some, and some are still in progress. And so, um, yeah, just by way of update, my son from Africa is doing amazingly well. He's learned to read this year and just loves stories. He will read all day long. And I think uh, it's just one of the gifts that God has given him to be able to step into other stories that have brokenness and joy and excitement from all over the world. One of his favorite series is actually uh, set in Africa. Um, but he's able in those stories to, I don't know, feel something deeply. And and I think God is working on his soul through the gift of reading. So that's great. My biological son is fantastic as well. They're doing great. A year ago, we adopted a little baby girl who is wonderful. Her name is Elizabeth. We call her Elle. Uh, she was born in Florida. So she has been with us for a year and a kind of unex- unexpected blessing from that is also uh, having a relationship with her birth mama, um, which has been challenging and wonderful and really beautiful and redemptive, I think. We yeah have still had a couple miscarriages since then. So that part of the story, you know, is is not really anything new and there's not really redemption in that. I wouldn't say that adopting a child replaces that that loss. It's just a completely different joy in your heart kind of grows in a way that you didn't know that it would and makes room for more. But there's still, you know, broken spots and empty spots where we still miss and talk about John Mark. Um and still more in that we haven't, you know, um been able to carry a child. But you know, who knows what God's going to do? I don't know. I think we're hoping to adopt again too. So yeah, the story is very much, very much an open book and we'll see what God does next. Oh my gosh. There's so much just in those (laughs) few sentences you just said. You could, you could do a whole other story night. Oh gosh. (laughs) I mean, just, just those, I mean, the word miscarriage, the word adoption, those words, those words carry a whole novel with them of a story. They do. They do. And you know, I think another thing that's really been uh, redemptive and cool is that Moses was not, he was so young. He was two when he came home, but he doesn't understand the process and he doesn't understand what we went through to bring him into our family. But he walked every step of the way of Elle's adoption and he sat and watched us fill out all the paperwork and he went with us to get fingerprinted and he prayed for Elle's birth mama and he met her. Uh, he was in the hospital room. We, we took the boys with us and they actually met 
their little sister and birth mama at the same time and got to see Sarah hand the baby and put her in my arms, which was just a devastating and redemptive and beautiful moment. You know, it was so painful for her and so joy filled for us. And so to see that tension and for the boys to experience that as, you know, seven year olds, they, they knew what was going on. And so I think, yeah, part of his story is like, oh, adoption means a little more to me now. There's this Christian singer that we love named Randall Goodgame, and he, he writes kids' music. We especially love his Bible songs called Sing the Bible, uh, just for helping us to memorize scripture. And he has this song called I'm Adopted, and it's it's a really cute song. His son was actually adopted from Africa as well, I believe. And so in the song, he says, the they're singing, and they're saying, I'm adopted, and it's about this boy being adopted to a family. But then the next verse is about, I'm adopted into God's family. So the boys have been singing that song together, and my biological son says, oh yeah, I'm adopted too. We're we're all adopted in this family. And so they're starting to really understand and, and I don't know, just feel the weight of, it's amazing that we are all adopted into God's family. And adoption is how our family has been formed, but it's more than just everybody in our family looks different or was born in different places or, you know, whatever. It's, it's a much fuller picture, I guess. So yeah, it, it feels like adoption can be such a hard thing. And it is, it is weighty and there's a lot of brokenness in it, but it also just has, has a lot of beauty and has really formed the identity of our family. It is amazing. I'm just absolutely amazing. And just so incredible. I think there are a lot of women that may hear your story and think I could never do that. Yeah. Like I don't have the the grit or the grace or whatever, fill in the word to do that. I think your story is such an inspiration to many and I hope that women can find themselves within your story. Yeah. And yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of pieces in it where I've talked to so many people, especially even just since sharing it, that we've all felt these different, these different pieces, right? And I think adoption is, can be incredibly challenging and you, you have to be prepared for that. But I also just have seen how God has made a way and yeah, just spoken into our hearts and souls and identities in ways that wouldn't be there if it hadn't been for the gift of adoption for our family. I just love it. And I could stay on this topic with you for so long, (laughs) but for time's sake, I'm going to shift gears just a little bit because before we fully close, I I wanted to ask you about your podcast because I think a lot of listeners, especially right now, (laughs) Mm -hmm. are going to want to know what you're doing and how they can get connected. So I'll, I'll let you share about that. And listeners, I'll put all of the links and anything in our episode notes as well. Yeah. You know, I think the theme of the story that I told a few years ago was really that there is darkness and it is heavy, but there is light within that darkness. And there's an overarching narrative that we can trust even when we're in those moments of conflict where we don't see the happy ending. And I would say, you know, my story has for sure some happy endings in it, but there's a lot of happy endings that haven't happened yet. And so part of the way that I try to live by God's grace, I guess, is really instilling that that view of life in my children. And so dealing with the hard things, but also looking for the light and the hope in that. So I actually um, am a teacher by training. I taught for 10 years and in the classroom and I'm, have been homeschooling my kids for the last few years. Uh, and I have a podcast about homeschooling. I teach classes locally. And so um, this is kind of an extension of that just because we couldn't meet because of Corona. So I kind of took what we do in real life and tried to modify it into a podcast format for the students that I normally see. And it's just spread a little bit beyond that. And so we have other friends that aren't local that are enjoying it. The big idea really is 
bringing goodness and truth and beauty into our everyday lives. And one way that we can do that is through literature, through poetry, through music, uh, through the Bible, first and foremost, right? And so the, the format of the podcast is really starting out with a, a short little Bible lesson that feels very accessible to kids. It's geared really toward like, I don't know, five to 12 year olds or so. And then uh, extending into stories, into fairy tales, myths, uh, folk tales, fables, and then into into some fun science facts and then uh, poetry and classical music and just how to listen and how to enjoy those things. And then uh, we have some fun riddles from listeners and just just some fun, fun little things. And hopefully just to be a little tiny bit of an escape, I guess. And uh, from, I don't know, from this, this season that we're in where it feels like there's not a whole lot of normalcy. And so just trying to infuse a little beauty into you know, whatever your day looks like right now. In the podcast as well, I have some tips for moms. Uh, like I said, I, I taught for 10 years. I have a master's in education and I've done a lot of consulting over the years. And so there are a handful of episodes that if you're thinking about homeschooling and you don't even know where to start, you can just log on and they're 10 minute quick episodes. Here's what you need to know about teaching math or literature or science or history or, or whatever it might be. Here are some ways to build out your day or do morning basket, which is this really fun homeschooly thing that really anybody can do. Uh, if you're doing distance learning and you just want a little extra support, there's stuff on there as well. So it's, it's a whole, <laughs> it's a whole thing of just, you know, supporting your kids and helping them to see God in, in every day and, and through their education without having to be really explicit about it, but just enjoying the world that he's created and the gifts that he has given us. I love that. And I, I know that everything you've said will resonate with so many listeners and many of those who are at home with their kids and trying to kind of navigate the new schedule in life right now. Uh, this will, this will fit quite, quite beautifully. Um, to, to wrap up, I was hoping that you might have some words of hope and encouragement for any of the listeners who just I mean, for all of them, but those who especially identified with your story, maybe they also went through one or multiple heart-wrenching miscarriages, dealing with infertility, adoption. These are all really big and heavy topics, yeah. and and women just need to know that they're not alone in that. Yeah. So, if if you had a chance to, you know, yeah. sit down for a coffee with with some of them, what final thoughts might you share? Oh my gosh, there's so many. I think, I mean, with anything in life that it's a journey and being okay with sitting in the tension of trusting God, but also feeling the pain and the suffering right now, it's very real. And I think time heals a lot of wounds. <laughs> and so, you know, three years later now I can, you know, talk about it without, without crying, but there's still this like soft place in my heart that wonders. I mean, I have a friend who had a baby just a couple weeks after John Mark's due date. And every time I see her son or pictures of him on Instagram or whatever, you know, I just think like, I wonder what John Mark would have been like. I wonder what he would have looked like or what his personality would have been. And that, that doesn't go away. And I talked to an aunt not too long ago who lost uh, two babies. They were, after they were born, they were quite young, but she still talks about how she still like thinks of them all the time. And I mean, they would have been my age. They would have been my cousins. And so, you know, they would have been in their thirties and forties now. And she still thinks about them all the time and, and wonders about them and, so I think it's okay to sit with that. I, I think it, I don't know, it's hard. There's also, um, I think I've done a lot of soul work, I guess, and being very intentional about taking the pain to God because it's really easy to get wrapped up in it, especially when people around you aren't dealing with those things. When all of your friends get pregnant the first time they try and 
or didn't want the baby or, you know, weren't trying to get pregnant and did anyways, or, you know, adoption stories that are super easy when yours is super hard or, and it's just, I mean, adoption is just an overwhelming process. It's like you can have a baby or you can sit here and fill out a year's worth of paperwork and spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. I mean, I could have a really nice car right now. <laughs> You know, or or even infertility things, and and all the all the stuff and the baggage that goes with all of those things. Um, so it's really easy to look around and feel the weight of that. And I I think it's important to remember that God sees all of that, and that you can take it to Him. Um, and so learning how to sit, how to how to pray, and even when you don't have words, one thing I found helpful is uh, prayer books where somebody else has written these words that I can I can sit with and kind of give form to the feelings that I have inside. You know, finding a few friends that that are trustworthy that that can just support you. It's just not always going to be okay, and I I don't. There's nothing more to say about it. It's probably something you're going to carry forever. But I think it's it's a burden that you can carry. It's not too much for you. In the podcast this week, I was been going through the Lord's Prayer with the kids and coming to the part on temptation and and connecting that to the passage that says, "No temptation has seized you except what is common to man." But God provides a way out. That even when you're tempted, even when things are hard, God always provides a way out. And sometimes it's a lot of work to look for that way out, the way that he will provide for your needs, but he does. And so not getting stuck in your head and the temptation that you have to control it or that if things don't turn out a certain way, it's not okay, or you're not going to be okay. But that God, it sounds so cliche, but like he's enough. And, and sometimes the story, that's where the story needs to end is even if you don't know, even if there is still the tension, even if there isn't an ending, it's okay. And it's enough. So I don't know if that's super hopeful. That's, that's how I've <laughs> kind of walked through it and, and figured out how to navigate the journey. You said a couple of things that just really hit home. And I know that the listeners who have been following every episode, as soon as you said, he is enough, probably immediately thought of Jamie's story in episode 23. And if you haven't heard that one yet, I encourage you to go back and really hear that story that he is enough. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who are just really seeking other people who understand infertility, adoption, miscarriage, and infant loss. We really do have so many resources for you through Calvary Mac. So please don't hesitate to reach out to me. There's some pretty wonderful things. There's a faith-based organization called Sarah's Laughter I highly recommend, and I'm happy to help you get connected in other ways as well. And lastly, you said that taking your pain to God, Mm -hmm. even when you don't have the words, And I just would love to ask you to to do that right mm-hmm. now in closing. We we always ask our speakers to pray for the listeners. And I think what a perfect example for all of the women listening who feel very broken and have that pain. And they're not really even sure how to take that to God. What does that even look like mm-hmm. or sound like? Would you close us in prayer on behalf of those women? Yeah, I'd love to. I'm actually going to read a prayer to model that for you. This is from a book called A Diary of Private Prayer by John Bailey. I have the updated one. So it was updated by Susanna Wright. Just the language is a little bit more modern, but it's it's his private prayer journal. And so this isn't meant to be read <laughs> typically to a whole group of people, but I just want to show you how it is uh, spoken in my life, I guess, and and really recommend that you check this out because I think it's it's broken down that there's a morning and an evening prayer for every day of the month, and then you just cycle back through every month. And I have come back to this for years over and over again. So this is from the morning of the fourth day. And here's what he says. Oh Lord, you alone know what lies before me today. Grant that in every hour I may stay close to you. Let me be in the world, but not of it. 
Let me use this world without abusing it. If I buy, let me be as though as I have nothing. And if I have nothing, let me be as though as I have everything. Do not let me embark on anything today that is not in line with your will for my life, nor shrink from any sacrifice that your will demands. Suggest, direct, and guide every movement of my mind. For my Lord Jesus Christ's sake, amen. Amen. Thank you for modeling that. I, I do think there's so often, especially within kind of the, the Christian world where we say things to do, but we don't necessarily know how to do them. Yeah. It, it, we say these phrases, oh, you know, take it to the Lord. But there's so many I, people like, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? How do I do that? So yeah. um, ever the teacher, I appreciate that you modeled it for <laughs> us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and I just want to thank you again for opening your story. It was a, it's such a powerful story. It's a, there's so many raw chapters in there. Um, and your vulnerability is, is so appreciated. I know God is using your story in pretty mighty ways. Well, thank you. And thank you everybody for listening. I hope you were encouraged. I hope you were blessed by this episode and we hope to have you back next week for our next story. Good night, y'all. The Story Night Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Mac. For more women's stories, visit calvarymac.com slash women. Mm-hmm.